So we're in Ephesians chapter 5, and um, we're looking beyond the three what's of marriage and what define the high value of marriage that we've studied the last four weeks here in our Gospel Family series. And, uh, and now we move into just more of the how, more of the hows of marriage, and yet even in our hows, um, it's still going to be so worshipful. You know, we want to worship the Lord in our living and in our action as we study all of this. And tonight, we're going to be kind of breaking into just the, the reality check and the call and the privileges uh, to women. And then probably in a few weeks, we'll get to men. And then, you know, also in between all of that, we're going to have the mixture of, hey, this is for the husbands too, or, you know, and, and those kinds of things. And so tonight, to kind of break ground in, uh, in the section dealing with wives and their roles and their calls and, um, and their responsibilities, uh, we want to get a right definition of uh, what uh, <laughs> what we would say is a controversial word and a controversial call, and that is submission. Uh, and so we want to get a right definition of submission tonight. And we want to bust out, uh, first of all, by reading just the text uh, in Ephesians 5.15. Um, we want to read... Uh, Tonight, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what, understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Great question to ask ourselves in this series is what makes a marriage a Christian marriage? And as I ask that question, uh, it, it's a given that uh, I'm assuming that not all marriages are Christian um, I assume that because it's the case. Not all marriages are Christian marriages. So what makes a marriage Christian? A lot of times I'm just um, baffled that people who really want Christ to be no part of their life, um, they don't want to follow Jesus. He is not their Lord. He is not their Savior. Uh, they've not submitted themselves to him as their head in life. Come to me and say, Rory, I want you to do my wedding. Uh, Rory, I want to do you the favor of letting me or letting you do my wedding. And I'm just like, why? <laughs> you know, I'm like, why do you want me to do your wedding? I mean, like, you don't even know who I am. I don't know who you are. Um, I'm not sure you know who Jesus is. Uh, why not just go down to the courthouse and have a justice of the peace, you know, get it all legified and, you know, <laughs> and uh, get you married? You know, why? 
And I think it's because, you know, people want somehow some act of religion upon their union. They want God to kind of, you know, bless it, even though, you know, he's not their Lord and he's not their savior. He's not their master. He hasn't redeemed them. And, um, and then they would go from there on, uh, assuming that they now have a Christian marriage. And um, they, they don't know what that means. But a lot of times people think a Christian marriage is Christian because the ceremony was done in a church by a licensed minister of the gospel who read select passages in scripture. Uh, perhaps he or I will say a prayer in Jesus' name. And yes, I will do that. <laughs> um, some people think that a marriage is specifically Christian because um, one or both members of the union go to church on a regular basis or the couple blesses their meals with prayer, you know, once or three times a day. Perhaps they have K-Love or, you know, Air One going pretty regularly in the car. It's really the only channel uh, that's allowed on in the car. Or, you know, maybe if you've been raised in a Christian home like me, you have some sort of needlepoint artwork or whatnot in the hallway that has like a Christian verse stitched uh, or there's pillows on the couches with cross-stitched, um, you know, psalms in them with a duck floating in the water by a cattail. has nothing to do with the verse, but they're easy to stitch. Um, <laughs> that's the first thing I learned how to cross-stitch. Um, <laughs> you know, or only TBN is allowed on your TV or only the courageous fireproof series are allowed to be rented from Redbox. Are these what make a home a Christian home? Maybe the wife has surrendered all forms of outside employment so that she can give all of her strength and energy to satisfying her husband, developing the home, homeschooling the kids. Is this what makes a marriage a Christian marriage or a home a Christian home? And, uh, and really, honestly, don't mean to poke fun at those things because, you know, many people have the cross stitch and the things like that, and they love Jesus. And so they worship God by putting those things up. Um, I love the answer to all this, the deep, the deep, deeper things, more than these things. As uh, just one of my awesome sources through this whole study has been Art Azurdia, a pastor from Portland and one of our mentors here as elders. He says, really, uh, this Christian home, this Christian family is marked by a zealous willingness between the husband and wife to emulate the nature of the relationship that exists between Jesus Christ and his eternal bride. It is the willingness to imitate Christ's romance of the church and in return, her response to that romance. And as we've studied uh, last week, where does this zealous willingness come from? It comes from the gospel. It comes from being a gospel family. And in looking at the gospel family, we find that this power, this zeal, this willingness comes from the truth of the scriptures themselves, from the Holy Spirit informing us what he desires from us as husband and wife, but not only informing us, but also empowering us to do it. As we looked last week, one of the things that gives marriage its high value is the Holy Spirit empowering marriage to be what God's designed it to be and approximating it to be exactly what it was in the Garden of Eden or nearly what it was in the Garden of Eden. And so this zeal, this willingness to submit to one another in love, it comes from the information and the power of the Holy Spirit. As we read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, and the first word or the first phrase is, Wives, submit to your husbands. Um, so many conferences and so many Bible studies just start out with, with this discussion on submission that begins with, Wives, submit to your husbands. And it just really, so many Bible studies or books or whatever just lay out, like, Wives, here's what you need to do. And, um, and we know that that's the wrong place to start. We, we don't ever want to start our discussion of marriage 
just at Ephesians 5.22. And I vow that I will never do that again, um, you know, after I've gone through this series. I've done it before, and I last year spoke at a Valentine's Day banquet starting at Ephesians 5.22, going through verse 33, but still, that's the wrong place to start. We looked at that in depth last week. And the reason why wives submit to your husbands is the wrong place to start is because it puts the woman in bondage. It puts the woman in bondage. It calls her to moralism, as one man said, and divorces her from the only means by which she can fulfill these obligations. Okay, we don't want to just lay out the rule and the regulation for the woman. We don't want to just put a yoke upon herself, but we want to first equip her with the power to do what she's called to do. And so we go back like we did last week. We in de- If you weren't here last week, you've got to listen to last week because we went grammatically clear back. We followed the leader clear back to Ephesians 5.18. And we looked at that we're not to be drunk with wine that all sorts of debauchery comes from Ephesians 5.18, but we're to be filled with the Spirit. And that is a good place, a right place, not the only place, but a good place to start with in this subject matter that we'll be going through for many weeks to come to both wives, to both husbands, to kids, to employers and employees, is that we need to be filled, overflowing continually, the language says, continually overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And the reason I say that this is a good place to start, but not the only place to start, is because we see it here in Ephesians 5.18, but there's a whole broad context here of the whole book of Ephesians. You know, the book of Ephesians is essentially split in half with two different awesome sections And the hinge that splits those two sections in half is back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Let's look at it. Ephesians 4, 1, where Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So this hinge here is Ephesians 4, 1, and it's where we begin this new part where we start walking. We start walking in a calling. There's a lot more practical things laid out for us to walk in there in Ephesians 4.1. It starts out in 4.1 with um, this word, therefore, which has been called a logical connector, stating that whatever proceeds after Ephesians 4.1 logically is connected to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, and Ephesians chapter 3. So something happened here where Ephesians 4.1, it hinges and it starts saying, start walking. Start walking worthy. And then we'll get to Ephesians 5.22. Start submitting and, and start loving and start obeying these walkings that take place. But what went before Ephesians chapter 4 that that says, therefore, something's connected here that would make us want to start walking. And so we want to go to the beginning of the book, to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, where we see really just this theme taking place of the riches that God has lavished upon the Christian. That there's a high and holy calling upon the Christian. Let's look at Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to just kind of underline or, or note um, every awesome blessing or riches that God's given us. Okay, um, Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blemish, without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, 
In him also we've obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Look at verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Are you guys catching all of these, just this, the treasure chest that is opened up to Christians? We've been given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Verse 3, verse 4, he chose us. Verse 5, he's predestined us to be adopted. I mean, it goes on and on. He's made us accepted, verse 6. We have redemption, verse 7. We have forgiveness, verse 7. There's riches of grace given to us. Um, the words are really tiny here. I'm trying to read. I think it's verse 11 there that uh, we have an inheritance that we're given. Verse 13, uh, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit to promise our salvation. He's the guarantee of an inheritance that we're given. All of these unbelievable blessings that have been given to us as Christians. And nowhere does it, you know, give these big lists of works. You know, mountains that we have to climb and oceans that we have to swim in order to get these things. These are just expressions of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel, what he has done for us. Then you go to chapter 2, Ephesians 2. Verses 1 through 10, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. We were by nature's children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So in verses 1 through 10, we have our biography just written out for us. And it, every one of us, if we're in Christ, if we're Christians, put that on the biography channel and slap your face on the front of it. And you can say, that is me, dead in trespasses and sins, but made alive in Christ, seated in heavenly places, saved by grace, the riches of God poured out upon me good news and it was never about my labor or my effort or my works but his unearned favor upon my life so verse 11 so remember that you once gentiles in the flesh who were called circumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands that in that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope in the God in the world, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jump down to verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, jump to verse 22, in whom you also are bearing or being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So, chapter one, chapter two, all that he has done for us, the riches of the blessings that come from knowing him and receiving, being recipients of his grace. Chapter three, we're just gonna read a short little section here. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he prays that God would be glorified in the church um, for all generations, forever and ever. 
Amen. So, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, the first half of the book that's been called the redemptive indicative. That means there's this statement of a fact and the whole fact in chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about our redemption. Guys, this is important because this is all the context of Ephesians chapter 5. And and our flesh wants to get into 5 and just show our wife what she's been doing wrong or show our husband what he's been doing wrong so we can stick it to the man or stick it to the woman and by gosh, make him do something that's going to please me for once. But we got to go back to the whole context of the whole thing. And it all starts out by just realizing God's grace and the riches. And like, we can't meditate on that enough. I mean, we just need, we just need to like sit back and close our eyes and just like sucking on a hard candy or something. Just like, mmm, mmm, mmm. <laughs> that is good. Oh, how good he has been. I mean, there's, I mean, I've been trying try to read through it as fast as I could for you guys. It's just so good though. All of this good stuff in the first, it all is the fact of what the gospel has done for us. The redemptive indicative. So then we have that hinge, all that God's done for us. And then chapter 4, verse 1, the hinge, hopefully it's not rusty, it might not even make a noise. To the end of chapter 6 of Ephesians, there moves on to what in grammar is called the moral imperatives. So we have the redemptive indicative, which just basically states the fact, but that fact must move us to a response, okay? That fact must and does move us to a response called the moral imperative. It is imperative that we respond to chapters 1, 2, and 3. He moves us from what is, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, to what ought to be in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And so he says, therefore... I beseech you to walk, this is what ought to be, you ought to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Not saved by good works, but saved for good works. There needs to be unity between what God has done for us and what we were called to do. So why should we even bother with any of this? Well, this is the Christian life. This is the spiritual life. This is the gospel life. This is the grace life. Do you want that? That should be what we want as Christians. We want the Christian life. We want the spiritual life. We want the gospel life. We want the grace life. And yet we so often think, if I do this, God will bless me. That is not the gospel life. The gospel life is not do this and God will bless you. The gospel life is God has blessed you, now do this. It's a response of worship to what God has already done for us. Chapter 5 that we so often just bust to as fast as we can. We've got it highlighted like crazy. There's a ribbon in it, you know. So we can bust it out in our marriage fights that we have. It's not some separate piece of the book. You know, Paul didn't say, man, I wrote to you about all this theology of predestination and election. And I can tell that people are getting restless in their seats. They're getting up and going out and drinking water and, you know, kind of staying out in the foyer for a little while. And I'm watching them. And so just because that's getting a little hard to handle, now I'm going to start talking about family life. You know, that'll bring them back in and sit them down and capture their attention. That's not what he's doing. This is all part of the exposition of the text. This is all part of the context of all that Paul's been saying. That the theology of 1, 2, and 3 produces the doxology and the worship of lives lived out in response to grace. We're focusing on the family. But in this whole series, it's all in light of the gospel. And for me, it's been different than anything I've ever heard before, which is sad because it's truer and more biblical 
than anything I've ever heard before or studied before. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, in the structure of verses 22 through verse 28, the wife's role and the husband's role, even in the structure we have the evidence laid out that it's just a response to what he's already done. Um, There's three parts. If you go back to Ephesians 5, there's three parts as we look at wives, as we look at husbands. Part 1 is found in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. There's also verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. There's those commands that are given there. That's the first part. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Then let's jump to the third part in verse 24. The third part is wives, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Or in verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives. So that's one and three, parts one and three. But sandwiched in between those, like the delicious frosting nougat of an Oreo, is verses 24 through 25. Where it's not just husbands do this, or so also husbands ought to do that. It's just as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So this delicious frosting of part two is the model that we're to copy, the forerunner that's gone before us, the true and better husband of Jesus. Wives cannot submit to their husbands, and husbands cannot love their wives without looking at the forerunner, without looking at part two, without looking at that frosting, if you will. I don't know why I keep going back to that. It's just so good. Looking at Jesus as the example. And so this is what makes marriage a Christian marriage. Get your stamp out, dip it in red, and stamp on it that it is a registered Christian marriage. If you follow this outline, if you follow these moral indicatives, these observed facts, I'm just going to read the way Artaxerdia put it. Because he helped me a lot with the grammar and everything. Uh, He put, these moral indicatives are tied to Christological imperatives. Moral indicatives, these observed facts, make, this is how I wrote it in parentheses, these observed facts of what Jesus has done motivate the believer and the listener to change their behavior. What Jesus has already done motivates us to change our behavior. What we are to do for each other is directly tied to what Jesus has already done for us in the good news of the gospel. Gospel living is not do and God will bless you, but God has blessed you, now do. And so with Paul in the whole New Testament, every time there's some ethical topic or moral topic that comes up, he uses it as an example to preach Christ, to preach the good news of the gospel, whether it's teaching on, you know, counseling or discipline, you know, in fact, with all of our preaching, all of our teaching, all of our counsel, all of our discipline, it would be less than Christ-centered. It would be less than Christian if it didn't have the motivation come from observing what Jesus has already done. And so what makes a marriage or a family a Christian marriage or a Christian family? If it's gospel-centered, if it's Christ-centered, and this is always going to be at odds with the worldview This is always going to be at odds of what the books are going to tell you to do. Most of the books, not all of the books, world books, many Christian books. But the worldview is against 
the gospel. And so, verse 22 of Ephesians, this offensive word, it's all summed up, the the offense here is summed up in the word submission, okay, or submit. And it's so funny to do weddings and to come to this passage and to say that word and to just watch people start squirming in their seats. And I usually like, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me explain, you know, what submission is. It's an ugly word in the world. Many people try to dismiss Ephesians 5.22 in this word submission, or really, as you see it earlier in verse 21, that we're to submit to one another in law, they dismiss it for a few reasons. Number one, because of context. You know, they look at, oh, you know, there's slaves in chapter six and we never were supposed to have slaves. And so we just dismiss this whole section. But as we looked at one of our first studies here in Gospel Family, slavery wasn't created by God, was it? But marriage was created by God. It was a sovereign design of the Lord. And so he gets to dictate how and when and for how long and why and when and where and how it functions. And so we can't, you know, dismiss it because there's the mention of slaves and masters uh, in chapter 6. Other people like to throw out that it was a cultural thing. They like to say that back then women were held down. And so, you know, this passage is not applicable today. People today bring out their spectacles and their reading glasses and say, Paul is trying to diminish women and to lower them here by making them submit. And they'll say, Paul is out of step with our culture. And it's true, Paul is out of step with our culture but he was also out of step with his own culture. And we're going to look at that uh, for just a second. In Ephesians chapter 5, in Colossians chapter 3, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Paul is actually elevating women here. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, and as we look at it, you'll see, Paul is lifting women up out of the miry pit. And anywhere Jesus goes and the gospel goes in the world, women are lifted up. Women are valued. Paul's Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, they were revolutionary statements in his time. Uh, In Jewish law, let's look at his time real quick. In Jewish law, a woman was just a piece of property. Like his house, like his sheep, like his land. As we know from studying the Gospels, that uh, a man could divorce his wife for any reason if she burnt his food or if she wasn't looking as beautiful as she was when they were first married. The woman never had the same opportunity to divorce her husband. She could, uh, you know, only divorce if there was uh, leprosy contracted by the husband or if he died and then the divorce wasn't really necessary or if there was some kind of gross immorality on the husband's part. Uh, With the Greeks that Paul interacted with, uh, many times uh, women or wives, excuse me, would live alone with other women. They would eat meals alone. Uh, They could only see the husband when he called for her and then she would be put back in uh, the separate dwelling place. Um, He, as the husband, could enter into as many relationships as he wanted to outside of the marriage And uh, he could do as he pleased. Again, women were treated like some inanimate object. The writer Demosthenes said, We have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. Prostitutes, essentially, for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. And we have wives for the purpose of having legitimate children and having faithful guardians of our household affairs. Wouldn't you feel valued, wife, um, living back in the Greek days? Uh, This was the dignity that Paul was um, bringing into this context back then. Uh, Rome was no better as Paul spent much time around the Romans. Uh, The Roman writer Jerome speaks of one woman who was in uh, marrying her 23rd husband, and she was his 21st wife. 
In the Roman culture, Jerome writes that women didn't want to have children because it ruined her appearance. Kind of sounds familiar today. Uh, Some women wanted to do everything that men did. Sounds kind of familiar today. Uh, So they developed women wrestlers in Rome, women sword throwers, and women everything else. (laughs) Uh, Juvenile, the Roman writer, wrote that women began to lord it over their husbands and before long they'd advocate, or excuse me, they'd vacate the home and flip from one marriage to another, wearing out their bridal veils. Kind of reminds you of the part of the curse where God speaks to Eve and says, your desire will be for your husband, to rule over your husband, but he shall rule over you. There will always be this this bent towards rebelling against uh, the husband and wanting to rule over the husband. And so the first century, whether it was in uh, Jerusalem or whether it was in Greece or whether it was in Rome, was a time not like our own, as Tim Savage says. Women were beginning to assert their rights. They were climbing to positions and prominence. The injunction to subordinate themselves to their husband would have sounded as reactionary to their ears as it does to ours. And so the culture that Paul sent his letter to was just as much a culture that would receive it as anywhere in America today. Paul would elevate women, provide her a new way of life that was better than they've known anywhere else in Greek or Roman or Jewish culture. This is the same man, Paul, who It was, in a sense, a campaigner for women's rights when he wrote this revolutionary slogan in Galatians 3.28, There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Does that sound like the writings of a man who's trying to just put a woman in her place and make her bow down and to be some sort of chauvinist pig? Now, you look at other cultures, and you see that history has this pathetic trail of chauvinism. Let's look at it. Plato believed that a bad man's fate was to be reincarnated as a woman. And yet everybody loves Plato. Buy it for our kids all the time. Okay, no. Um, Aristotle taught that females are imperfect males accidentally produced by the father's inadequacy or by the malign influence of a moist south wind. But we love Aristotle. Josephus, guy I've read a lot of and and appreciate, Jewish uh, man turned Roman historian, Josephus believed that the woman is inferior to the man in every way. In the Jewish Talmud, men are taught to give thanks to God that he did not make them a Gentile, a dog, a slave, or a woman. Are you feeling appreciated, gals? In Gandhi's autobiography, a Hindu husband regards himself as lord and master of his wife who must ever dance attendance upon him. In the Quran... Men have authority, I quote, men have authority over women because Allah has made the one superior to the other. And so as Tim Savage says, there's this unbroken tradition of male domination in both the East and the West. Enter in the gospel that is not at all male domination, but that crucifies the flesh and its passions and lusts and says no to self and brings out service to one another. An example, they're following the example of Jesus Christ who went before us. And so often they people, uh, people want to be rebels. But if you really want to be a rebel, as we've looked just at culture and at the heroes of our culture, if you really want to be a rebel, then you should say, I think it's right to submit to my husband. That'll be a rebel against the world. Don't say I won't submit. That's exactly what the world says. If you want to be a rebel, if you want to start a revolution, 
Just tell everybody, I want to do it the biblical way. I want to submit to my husband as to the Lord. In the book of Song of Solomon, you have submission and authority perfectly interwoven when it said, my beloved is mine and I am his. Another reason that uh, this passage of Ephesians 5.22 is dismissed is because people take bad situations and make it really the authority in their life. They take the most extreme situation. People do this all the time. They do it in the abortion issue. When the left wants to talk about abortion and defend abortion rights, they will use the extreme situation like a rape case, which is totally tragic. What about the woman who is raped? What is she supposed to do, supposed to do with this child? But they never use the example of the 25-year-old woman who's had her third convenient abortion. They use the extreme situation. In the same way, here we come to Ephesians uh, 5.22. And, you know, submission being this horrible word, dirty word. You know, you speak the word and it renders people, you know, they, they begin to think of subjugation to male domination. They think of tyranny. They think of oppression. They think of a woman being regarded by her husband as a servant and a slave and a doormat. And that has happened. Those are unbiblical things. Those are not gospel-centered things. Those are extreme cases. God's word in the hands of a fool has brought much damage. The devil quotes the scripture so often, quoted it when he tempted Jesus. And Jesus used the scripture in context to correct him. And the devil is using the scripture today everywhere he goes to mar the good news of Jesus Christ. And he does it here in Ephesians 5 as well. And so let's get to the real, in 15 minutes... We're on page 8 of 17 in my notes, so we can do this. Let's look at the real definition of submission and what it really means in Scripture. In the Greek, it's the word hupotasso, okay? Hupotasso, and it means to line up under or to place in order. This expression was a military term and was used in military contexts, uh, to get conscripts to line up under the commanding officer. The most accurate English translation would probably be the term to subordinate, to line up under or to subordinate. This great piece of wisdom, the best piece of wisdom that Paul can offer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is for wives to subordinate or to line up under, or to place themselves in order under their husbands. If you're taking notes, submission on the part of the Christian wife is defined as a voluntary yielding to the love of her husband. Does that sound so bad? A voluntary yielding to the love of her husband. Steve Carr said, finding the opposite meaning of submission can make it clear as to why God wants us to be this way. Here's the antonym to submission. Defiant, mutinous, rebellious. These are all attributes that are not compatible with marriage. If we're unwilling to subordinate ourselves, then marriages are driven apart. There's no harmony. As Artaxerxes said, God's design for marriage is, I like this, a choreographed dance of submission to love. A choreographed dance of submission to love. Now, this is not coerced submission, nor is it forced submission. Get it? Coerced and forced. Forced. Okay. Not coerced nor forced. But it's a willful submission on the part of the wife. It's voluntary on the part of the wife because of two things here. Number one, who is it addressed to in verse 22? Husbands, make your wives submit. No, 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 no. 
It's addressed to the wives. It begins, wives. Guys that major in grammar, like me, no, not really, um, say that this is a case of direct address. And in the grammar and in the language, the wife is being directly addressed. And one professor said that that means that almost, you know, that, that husbands and children and everybody else could get up and leave the room because this is specifically being addressed to wives. That means that it is not for husbands to use to their wives. Any husbands ever done that? Not me either, praise God. Is Lindsay in here to, oh, shoot. Okay. Um, This word submit is in the middle tense. Okay, now there's three different tenses. Every Greek verbal idea has them. The active tense, the middle tense, and the passive tense. Real quick, let me tell you these things. Five seconds of grammar instruction, okay? In the active tense, if I say, I drive to the store, I perform that action. I drive to the store. Uh, In the passive tense, I would say, I was driven to the store, and um, the, the action was performed to the store. Now, finally, the middle tense, I drive myself to the store, it stresses the voluntary action on part of a free and responsible person. That's what we're looking at here. So, submission. Wives, submit to your husband. It's in the middle tense, and it means that that woman, that wife specifically, is a voluntary, uh, or is, is doing a voluntary action as a free and responsible person. It stresses this voluntary character on part of a free person. What does this mean? It means that the husband can never use this as a club on his wife. Like so many men do. Like I have done. (laughs) I've done it. I remember instances where I've done it. I'm praying that God would remove those memories. Ephesians 5.22 is not a license for men to break their wives' will or to break her spirit or to reduce her down to a servant of ours. But no, it's it's a command to the wife that she gets to do in obedience, in willful, voluntary obedience to the Lord. It's between her and God. Sorry, husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands, not wives, be made submissive by your husbands. Husbands aren't even dressed for a dress for a few more verses till verse 25. And we've got our own issues. Here in uh, the women's section, they get 40 words addressed to them. The homeboys get 115. We've got a little more learning to do. But the husband that takes it upon himself to use this verse to demand submission, you must submit to me. Don't you know that's what the Bible says? Then we lose the spirit of the whole thing. We lose the spirit of the gospel that would make this just flow out of what God has already done for us. And we make it law and we bust out moralism for our wife and we bring no power to it. But we divorce her, actually, from the power that is made available from the good news of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And so, what does submission mean? At the heart of submission is the notion of order. Not value, okay, gals? Not value and not worth. You are worth just as much as your husband. You are valued just as much as your husband. The issue here is order. The issue is role. The issue is function. It's a readiness to renounce your own will for the sake of the other, to give precedence to others. This is a quote that I've been doing at at a few weddings this summer. 
by Tim Savage, where submission represents a call to wives to give to their husband what belongs to the wives by right. Fully equal to their husbands, godly wives choose to put the needs of their husbands before their own. They are not subordinate, but with God's help, they willingly subordinate themselves. It is the volitional aspect of subordination that makes it so revolutionary. It is also what makes it so exalting. It was the willing submission of Jesus that paved the way for the power of heaven to invade what would have otherwise been the unremarkable existence of a Galilean carpenter. Jesus led the example by submitting to the Father. Azertius says, Submission is one's response not to a superior person, but one's response to a person holding a superior position. As uh, Steve Carr from Covenant Keepers says, submission should never be considered a word that denotes inferiority or a position that is contemptible to you. If this is your belief, let me assure you that, you are un- that your understanding of this issue is not a biblical one. Submission is something that we all have to learn in every aspect of our lives. You must learn to submit to the laws of this country, whether it's traffic laws or criminal codes. If you work outside of the home, you must submit to your employer and his or her requests. When you went to school, you had to learn submission to your instructor, to your teacher, when an assignment was given. When you go to the doctor with an illness, you must choose whether or not you will submit to the physician's diagnosis and treatment. When you, uh, when you must render submission in these areas of life, you don't consider it degrading to you as a person. You would never think of your employer or your doctor as better than you are or that you are inferior to them. In these circumstances, you would reason that your submission is a simple necessity for harmony in the workplace, or it's necessary for you to gain your health. The same is true for your marriage. True biblical submission in the home will bring harmony and health to your marriage. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, we're told, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. In verse 21, we see that we're to submit to one another. This is the starting point, or the house table, as Martin Luther put it. Things will get blown up and undermined if there's not a co-submission. An ethnic or excuse me, all ethnic, social, and gender distinctions are obliterated in terms of standing before God where there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. And Jesus set the stage for us when in all four Gospels, he would elevate the dignity of women. He would honor and respect women in a day when you weren't even supposed to speak to women publicly. Then you have John chapter 4, where he's there with the woman at the well, and he's speaking to her. And he's speaking words of compassion and forgiveness to her. He spoke to the Syrophoenician woman, and he touched the woman with the issue of blood. He traveled with women. Women gave to him. The first appearance of him as resurrected was to women. Jesus elevated women. Women in a culture that oppressed them and thought of them as just property. They were given dignity, value, and worth. And they can know that they are just as worthy and valuable as their husbands because Jesus lived it. Jesus showed it. Jesus proved it. On the part of the Christian wife, there's to be complete submission On the part of the Christian husband, there's to be complete love. Both of these roles are to just copy what Jesus did before. And both roles are to have complete and total death to self. 
Kent Hughes said, we heard him once at a men's retreat in Corvallis a couple years ago, the entire household teaching rides on the joyous, surging tide of mutuality. And so there is a co-submission, there is a co-value, a co-worth that is equal, and at the same time, in the midst of this equality, there is order, not chaos. A lot of the feminist persuasions today would say that there's a contradiction. They would deny this. But the law of contradiction says that something cannot be A and not A at the same time. This is not a contradiction. I can say that the Trinity is three and the Trinity is one, and I'm not contradicting myself unless I say that they are three and one in the exact same way. I can say that the Rogers are four and the Rogers are one, and I'm not contradicting myself unless I say we're four and one in the exact same way. In, in, in this case, I can say submit to one another in love, and I can also say wives submit to your husband because it's a different way. There's an equality of worth that's not identically of role. We're speaking of two separate things, worth and role. We have an example in the scripture of the priesthood of the believers. In Peter, 1 Peter, we're told that we are all priesthood that exists for worshiping and serving the Lord. And yet in the midst of the priesthood, there's leaders that God has appointed for role and for order and for function. And within the priesthood, Hebrews 13, 17 says that we're to obey those men known as elders that rule over us as to the Lord. Or excuse me, that rule over, uh, they watch out for your souls as to those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable. And so there's an equality and yet a distinction. For the sake of time, I'm just skipping over some things here. And so, in this autocratic society that we've lived in, where men try to be really masculine and get what we want by quoting Ephesians 5.22, whenever there's a little bit of an argument, and, and I've done it, and you know, I've, I've said, well, you know, eventually I'll just win because we come back to Ephesians 5.22 and the wife needs to submit. It's just wrong. It's a wrong heart. It should be just the opposite of that. The husband should be living out the life like Jesus lived out, where everything was for the bride's needs, the bride's wants, the bride's desires, the bride's well-being. The bride would win. The groom would seek out, like Christ did, uh, uh, this bride, a wise husband will seek her wisdom, will seek her perspective, will seek her feeling, will seek her best intentions and her desires because he loves her. It's not about what I get or about what I want. It's about the other. And that's what submission is. Humble recognition of God's ordering to respond willingly, not to all men, but to the love of her husband. Over the weeks, we're going to look at some different aspects of submission. We're going to look at the motivation behind submission. We're going to look at the justification in submission, the dignity of submission, and the extent of submission. That it's a Christian wife voluntarily yielding to the love of her husband, a husband who is in every way totally bound with seeking her greatest good to the glory of God. Real quick, here's what submission does not mean. Nope, not going to happen tonight because it's not real quick. I'd be lying to you guys. In closing, we see this submission within the Trinity itself. We mentioned that a little bit ago. As 1 Corinthians eleven three says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. God is not superior to Jesus. They're equal in value and in worth, but there is distinction of role and function. 
Philippians chapter 2 tells us that, that Jesus, who is in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took himself the form of a bondservant in the likeness of men. Being found in his appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus led an example by that. You know, um, the refusal to understand submission or the distortion of the concept of submission goes beyond 2012. It goes clear back to about 400 AD and even before that when Arius, uh, the leader of a heresy, refused to acknowledge that the Son of God was simultaneously equal to the Father in divine dignity and glory and yet distinct in function and role, and he voluntarily yielded himself to the authority of the Father because of his refusal to acknowledge the equality yet distinction, he was branded rightly a heretic. And he has many followers to this day known as Jehovah's Witnesses, modern day. As Alistair Begg says, somehow we think that equality and submission are diametrically opposed they are, uh, they are not, but they are bedfellows. This is the key to understanding not only the place of the wives, but the husband as well. There's not opposition in submission and equality, but they're bedfellows. And so uh, as we close tonight, we're not going to close with the song. We're just going to close in prayer with just finally this definition Another definition, two people bound and determined to outserve each other on behalf of each other. Nobody wins and they both win. That's what submission is. Lord God, a lot to take in, deep stuff. Lord, we, we want to go deep, Lord. We want just your gospel to saturate us as you led by example as you even have shown us equality and yet distinction in role and function, as you prayed in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. Lord, I pray that wives here would say, not my will, but your will, Lord. Lord, that I would just line myself under the role of my husband, who's the head of me, as you Lined yourself under the Father, who's the head of you. Lord God, we pray against just chauvinism in our church and in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us of distorting the word and for misusing Ephesians 5.22. We pray for forgiveness for any way that we've slapped just this rule on wives. As if they're inferior to us. never even mentioning just being led and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for your example of submission. When you just said, not my will, but your will be done. And I pray that we would all have that heart, God. We pray that Lord, you'd be preparing wives to hear what you would have them hear in the next weeks. And Lord, that you would prepare husbands to hear what they need to hear. And Lord, that as we all submit ourselves to you in worship and in relationship, you as our Lord, that we would see the fruit of willful submission in homes, God. We'd see just wives just honoring. As verse 33 says, let the wife see that she respects and honors her husband, Lord, as she respects and honors you, as she submits to you. We pray for the women in our church that are not yielded to you, God, that are not submitted to you. And there's tension in the home. There's disrespect in the home. And it's throwing everything out of order, out of harmony. That, Lord, by your spirit, you would draw these women into deep relationship with you. 
and is that they would submit to you, Lord, they'd submit to their husbands. We thank you for your design. We thank you for your order, God. We thank you for not just the, the mandate given, but the power to live out just your standards, Lord. Give us more of the Holy Spirit. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.